I'm WHQR News Director Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening to Port City Politics. Just a quick note, today's show was recorded with reporter Michael Pratt while he was on the road in Charlotte, and so the sound quality is not ideal. We're still working on getting our footing here on this new arrangement across the state, but we promise we will get there, so just bear with us for today's episode. All right, on with the show. Welcome to Port City Politics. I'm WHQR News Director Ben Schachman. And I'm Michael Pratt. And today we're going to talk about crossover day and uh, corruption and how the SBI looks into that. But let's start with crossover day, Pratt. Yeah, yeah. Crossover day, crossover week is when, uh, long story short, I've told you before, if you don't know how a bill becomes law, Schoolhouse Rocks, go watch it. Um, but the way it works in North Carolina and in this country is you have two chambers of lawmakers. You have the House of Representatives. You have the, the Senate, which we have both the state and federal, but we're talking about state here. Um, so the North Carolina General Assembly, uh, each chamber gets to create bills, which are proposed laws. Um, a lot of drafting goes into these things. Uh, we see them every year. You see some, you know, fantastically wild bills come out of uh, General Assembly sessions that, we might report on, but you probably have a good idea that they're not passing, like, you know, I don't know, legalizing all drugs for everyone over the age of 13, whatever it may be. Um, crossover day is when the bills that have made it far enough in each chamber are then crossed over into the other, uh, into the House, into the Senate, respectively. So they go from one chamber to the other. And only when both sides of this, the, the House and the Senate, can agree on something is when it can become a law if the governor doesn't veto it. So that's kind of what's going on this week. And we, we've had some pretty significant development in, you know, something you and I have talked about uh, a lot. And it's been on, the, on people's minds for, you know, since last year uh, when the Supreme Court of the United States uh, in the Dobbs decision overturned Roe v. Wade which is protecting women's rights to access an abortion. So that's what, kind of what the big talker this week uh, is for very, very obvious reasons. So um, you want to jump into that one? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone relishes getting into this, but we, we got to talk about it. And I want to start with um, what the legislation is actually saying, and it is remarkably similar to what State Senator Michael Lee told us after or in the lead up to the 2022 election we had a, a town hall with wect and port city daily and uh michael lee had also written a uh, an editorial for the star news where he kind of laid out what he thought um responsible abortion legislation would look like and i thought that was interesting because governor roy cooper tweeted uh the other day um yesterday on thursday we only need one Republican in either the House or Senate to help sustain the veto of this dangerous abortion ban. Ted Davis, Mich- Michael Lee, John Bradford, and Trisha Cotham promised to protect women's reproductive freedoms. There's still time for them to keep their promises. So uh, abortion advocates, you know, pro-choice advocates have been very critical of this bill for some reasons that we'll get into. But I can understand calling out uh, Trisha Cotham, former Democrat who switched parties and did run on women's rights type issues. Um, Michael Lee, I'm a little confused about calling him out because this bill looks very much like something that he had already predicted. Ted Davis, 
on the other hand, I think that's fair because this is a, this is a quote from Ted Davis. This is what he said over the summer leading up into the 2022 election. I support what the law is right now in North Carolina, and that is that a woman can have access to an abortion up to the first 20 weeks of pregnancy. Then after that, in order to have an abortion, I believe in reasonable restrictions, incest, rape, viability of the fetus, or the health of the mother. And so Ted Davis, a Republican representative from here in New Hanover County, saying that he was okay with the 20-week ban, that he thought that was appropriate, now going to what is effectively a 12-week ban, uh, I think people might have some questions for Ted. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I definitely do, and I just have to uh, stop and wonder if uh, Governor Cooper is uh, watching our town hall forums that he knew that. Uh, I like to believe that he was, and that Ted Davis Jr. didn't say any of this in an open session. But, uh, yeah, so for the Michael Lee, for, for State Senator Michael Lee, um, I did go back and listen to what he told us during that town hall forum. Um, and basically, he did kind of, he was very down the middle. He said, I have my beliefs. I still think we need to protect women's rights to access abortions. I do believe in up to the first trimester. Um, and then, you know, with some exceptions for incest, rape, or viability of the fetus, as he says it, um, this pretty much looked like that. Like, <laughs> it looks like the bill was drafted around his op-ed. Um, so I don't necessarily see, you know, as you mentioned, what Governor Cooper is saying that uh, Senator Lee said that is, you know, that this doesn't align with his belief. Um, but yes, with, with Ted Davis Jr., I mean, I'd, I'd love to know. I'd love to know. And this is something that you and I and John Evans over at WCC and our folks over at Port City Daily, we all talked about. We said, let's hold them to these things that they're saying you know, when the General Assembly comes in session, whoever were to win, um, you know, with anybody, um, let's see if they stick to their guns. And so this is a, you know, a great opportunity to point out that we have somebody on camera, on record, saying this, and then voting for more restrictive measures. So do I think that anybody in the GOP is going to flip? Um, I don't have a crystal ball, but my gut tells me no. Um, Trisha Cossum is a, uh, uh, from, uh, Mecklenburg County up here. Um, we talked about her recent party change in affiliation and how that gave the supermajority to the GOP in both chambers. Um, I'm not sure that, you know, her changing a vote on this would be a great welcome to the GOP. Um, you know, that, that super majority, that vote they needed uh, to really put them over the edge, I'm not sure that they would be thrilled with somebody going immediately against them after they've been supporting her party affiliation change here. So um, there's still some time. Governor Cooper has said that he's going to veto this. But as we said, um, with the super majority, a veto is essentially meaningless if Republicans are in lockstep when they vote on this so uh it's you know we say this all the time but it's one of those like wait and see situations but uh so far reading the tea leaves i don't believe that anybody is going to flip their position and go against this um you know for for all intents and purposes it just doesn't appear to be there 
Yeah, and I can only say that we did reach out to Representative Ted Davis, and so if he does weigh in, we're happy to talk about and, sh- and share his perspective on this. I will say you're probably you're definitely right. I don't think anyone in the GOP would um, lambast him for this or not vote for him in an upcoming election. But I do wonder about the impact on the unaffiliated uh, voter block. I mean, it's it's a huge portion of New Hanover County. It's a big portion of uh, North Carolina. It's um, the largest voting group, although it's more nuanced than that. You you probably have about half of the unaffiliated who are right-leaning, half who are left-leaning. But I still wonder about unaffiliated who might have voted for Ted Davis hearing that he was, you know, going to be more moderate on abortion and then has gone with this. Um, just one more quick note on this topic. There are some minor tweaks that could have major impacts in this bill. Um, some of the other changes... Uh, the current law requires two visits before you can get an abortion, um, 72 mm-hmm. hours apart. The first visit used to be allowed by phone or by, by telehealth, and that has been changed right. and now requires two in-person visits. And so you can imagine the impact on a working person who has to take two days off or take time off on two different days. It, it does probably make it more onerous, especially for people living in more rural areas or healthcare deserts. So that's one issue that will have an impact. It also requires that a doctor has to be present um, when abortion medication is administered. There's also some more consent requirements, increased licensing requirements, and regulatory fees. So all of this, say what you will, but the effect is going to be it makes it more difficult for people to get abortions, even within the 12 weeks uh, that they're still legal. So some people have actually managed to drill down into the fine print um, of this bill and see the other ways that will change it. So uh, I just want to say kudos to Colin Campbell, our colleague at a WUNC, for kind of parsing all that out. But that's where we are on the abortion issue, I think. Yeah, and I, I think that kind of sums it up. You'll notice we didn't really get into too much of the uh, medical talk here, and I will go ahead and say I am, I'm not avoiding it and avoiding, you know, trying to decipher what this means because I am not a doctor and more importantly, I am not a woman. So for me to try and explain these things would just be a political pundit trying to play doctor and I don't do that. Um, so, you know, the, the bill is there. There are people much more educated than me when it comes to health. Um, so this is kind of the higher level politics of it all, but overall it does seem that this will make access to abortions no longer as easy in North Carolina. And that's, uh, I will say after the Dobbs decision, uh, we did see that North Carolina was kind of becoming a haven for people in the South, women in the South who needed access to abortion that had states with more restrictive laws in place to come to. And while it still is not a total outright ban, it's certainly not going to be as easy uh, for women to get access to the health care that they need in North Carolina. Yeah. Uh, there's also, there's been a few other bills that we are watching during crossover week. Um, there was one that would ha- do away with the state's uh, concealed carry permit system entirely. <laughs> yeah. um, there's another interesting one that would allow the State Bureau of Investigations, which we'll talk more about in just a minute, um, to track phones without a warrant in an emergency. Uh, I can see the pros and cons of that one. So if that makes it through, we'll definitely be talking more about that. Definitely, definitely privacy hawks like me will be watching that bill. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of the Stingray suitcase that law enforcement can use. Um, they're supposed to get warrants for it. They're supposed Everything's supposed to be above board, but, you know, it's, it's questionable. So I think we will be watching that uh, as that bill goes forward. 
Um, and of course, there's been a number of changes to various facets of education. There's some legislation that would overhaul uh, how community colleges are run. It would basically strip uh, the governor and local school boards of their ability to appoint members of uh, board of trustees for community college. And a very contentious bill that would direct hundreds of millions of uh, public money to private schools um, through vouchers in North Carolina. So all of that worth watching and, tr- and sort of uh, talking through how they might impact us as if those bills are uh, picking up steam. Yeah, I mean, we're going to have a lot to talk about in the next coming weeks until uh, typically the politicians like to get out of the General Assembly before the 4th of July. Um, I'm not sure that's their official end date, but it's the unofficial end date. Uh, from what I have observed during these long sessions. So uh, from now until then, I expect this to be a lot more politically heavy conversations that you and I are having and people around the state are having for sure. Um, so all that to say, Crossover Week is a very exciting time, both uh, you know, good or bad uh, excitement here. There's a lot of talk going on. Um, so I think that's a good place we can kind of put a put a stop in that and come back to crossover because it, it was this past week. Yeah. Um, so I know we're a little short on time this week compared to some other weeks, but I do want to talk about a story you've been working on uh, that involves the SBI, as we kind of teased. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's worth getting into this a little bit, especially because the SBI investigates a lot of things. And I feel like it's not super well understood by the general public uh, how the SBI actually works. So let's get into this. Okay, yeah. So, you know, I'm glad you brought it up because that is, uh, even for myself, and I know you and I have had conversations about the FBI in the past, and we're kind of like, how does this work? You know, you watch shows like Criminal Minds where you have the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. They handle uh, federal crimes, or they're kind of like vampires. They have to be invited in by local law enforcement, and then they can come, you know, cross jurisdiction. Um The FBI is a little bit like a vampire. They have to be invited most of the time for for a lot of the circumstances. Uh, But there are things that they will investigate on their own. They have special divisions dedicated to different things. And as the name implies, they have jurisdiction all over the state. Uh, Recently here in uh, up in Charlotte at WBTV, David Hodges, my colleague, and I have worked on a story that has Uh, revealed that the SBI is investigating uh, the Cabarrus County chairman of the Board of Commissioners. Um, So we wanted to find out, you know, what's going on? Why did this, how did this happen? And we got a little bit of information. The SBI is typically great. They'll give us, uh, you know, confirmation at least. They they don't provide very much, um, but they're really great about responding and saying, yeah, we're looking into this. That's all we can say. Um, which we get. Criminal investigations are just that. We don't want to interfere with them. Um, But we did get a little bit more information after we wrote this story and put it out there. Um, The complaint actually stemmed from a council member in a town within the county. So that got us wondering, you know, what's really going on here? The allegations are, uh, and I don't want to be quoted, you know, directly on this, but Uh, I believe it's allegations of uh, fraud and uh, collusion, something to that degree. Um, So we wanted to know what was going on here. So I actually reached out to the SBI and I said, hey, can you run down how this works for me? Because if you're listening in New Hanover County and Wilmington in that area, you will remember the situation with former county chairwoman Julie Olson Bozeman. The SBI is 
still investigating her. But the FBI did not get involved in that case until Gary Holyfield, the gentleman who was, you know, filing a complaint, actually went to the Wilmington Police Department, filed a criminal complaint that then went to the district attorney and the police department, and they immediately kicked it over to the state for investigation. This didn't really happen that way. This was a complaint made by a fellow politician in the, in the county directly to the district attorney. And the DA told us, they put out a press release and said, we asked the FBI to investigate this. Um, I, asked the, I asked the FBI, was there like a criminal complaint filed? No, there wasn't. So when it comes to the FBI, you know, with put it this way, your, your regular district attorney, your Ben David, John David, whatever jurisdiction you might be in, your DA, if you go to them and say, hey, I think, you know, uh, that guy stole my wallet, they're going to say go to the police. That is when they can start getting, you know, involved in criminal proceedings. Um, but that's not the way it works when the DA, if, if you approach the DA with something like this, the FBI has a special division that investigates political corruption or allegations thereof. Um, so that is something that they'll do, and it doesn't require that criminal filing, um, which does make me wonder, though, looking back at the Julia Olson Bozeman situation, um, you know, the DA could have referred any complaint to, you know, to the FBI without needing to have a police report filed. Um, so the fact that that didn't happen and there had been allegations made in the past, um, that, you know, that's news to me. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. Having a police report filed is obviously uh, a more surefire thing. Um, but I didn't realize it didn't take a criminal complaint to launch an investigation. But that also tells me that if basically we got to wonder about the politicization of the FBI and using it. You know, we've seen this with the FBI, with the Department of Justice at the federal level. We've seen people accuse others of, you know, weaponizing the, the Department of Justice for their own political gains. Um, we haven't seen that as much within the FBI, but, you know, this does make me wonder if that is, you know, something that, that has happened. Uh, not, I'm not saying this instance is that, but just in general, the weaponization of police for political opponents. Yeah, I mean, one example that I can think of, and the, the fact that I can only think of one suggests that you're right, that it is pretty rare, was the um, investigation into uh, election registration fraud by Surf City Councilman uh, Jeremy Sugertz that ultimately went yeah. up to the SBI. Um, he himself claimed that that was quite a political hit job. Um, but in general, the, the SBI has, has not been the subject of that kind of accusation. So I think it's, I think it's worth looking at. Yeah, and, you know, again, it's, everybody, you know, it's America, innocent until proven guilty. But I do have to say just my curiosity as to what threshold, because you're a journalist, Ben, we both get these emails that say, oh, my God, this person is doing something crazy corrupt. Uh, if, if they were to go to the district attorney, what are the chances they kick that over to the FBI to investigate? So that's where I kind of wonder, like, what's the threshold? And I'm sure each DA is going to be different. Um, but for the FBI to be investigating since January of this year and the DA to have taken it seriously enough to send it to the FBI, um, 
it just makes me question the, the process here and what gets sent, what doesn't. And is that a completely subjective decision made on the DA? I mean, that's my big takeaway from this. And I think we'll be talking about this more. But, you know, when there's discretion, there's bias. And that's not always a bad thing, but it means, you know, someone is having to make a personal choice. All personal choices are subjective by definition. So you're not looking at a scoring system, right? You're not saying like, well, until this form is filled out, I can't do anything. Until there's a warrant, I can't do anything. Something like that. You know, when you when you have leeway, then you have to look at the individual making the choice and what their incentives are and what their motives are. So I, I think that's a valid area to look at. Yeah, absolutely. And before we before we hop off this, because like you said, I do know we both have to run. Um, I think I was in flux maybe when the whole CFTC, you brought up community college changes, and that made me really think. Um, the, the Ray Funderburk situation at CFTC. I saw that uh, your colleague Rachel Keith had a, uh, a piece on this the other day. Can you kind of fill just me and the listeners in on um, what, what y'all have found when it comes to the, the allegations made against Ray Funderburk uh, and his prompt removal? From the uh, from the board of trustees. Yeah, so I will say this was some dogged reporting from Rachel Keith, yeah. who's been following the story, and basically what she found was, you know, this, uh, the the email records around the removal of Funderburg were pretty sparse. Um, we didn't get anything between the board chair Bill Cherry and the vice chair Jason McLeod, who acted as the prosecutor in the hearing where Ray Funderburg was removed. We did find an email from the teacher involved in this. And if you recall, the allegation was that Ray Funderburg had unduly put pressure on a teacher to change a student's grade. So we were able to figure out who that teacher was, pulled his emails, because those are public record. And they really do tell a different story than the way McLeod presented it during the hearing. Um, you know, the email makes it clear that... Um, that Funderburg didn't do anything really untoward. I mean, he, he did say that the conversation was confusing, but he makes it clear that he wasn't intimidated. And as far as whether or not Funderburg actually put any pressure on him to change the email, it, it all hinged on this one sentence that really is not as damning as it was made out to be. Um, it has a lot to do with how the email was redacted. So we'll have a link to that, but basically... The email record did, just did not shore up the case against Funderburg at all. Um, it did show quite a bit of legal spending around it. Yeah, it's certainly, it, it, it's really an interesting story. If you haven't read Rachel Keith's reporting on this, uh, I can't praise it enough. Y'all have done a great job over there. Um, and I think with that, it is a good place to leave it. Yeah, so a lot more to keep our eyes on. But for now, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. All right, see you then.